Hey everyone, this is Last Jackson of Detroit Bad Boys, and on this week's episode, we're talking about your 17 and 47 Detroit Pistons. And actually, it's good that the Pistons are 17 and 47 because this week, Ben Gulker and I bring on Richard Stamen, aka at Mavs Draft, to talk about the top prospects in the 2022 NBA draft class and how they fit next to Cade Cunningham on the Detroit Pistons. As always, we appreciate your continued support of the podcast. The best way to do that is to share, subscribe, and leave comments. Please leave comments on the discussion post on Detroit Bad Boys. That's the best way for us to have the conversation that we want to have around the podcast. In order to do that, though, you have to follow DetroitBadBoys.com, which you should be doing because it's the best place on the internet for Pistons news and analysis this season. With all that said, it's time to go to work. Everyone, uh, welcome to this week's episode of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. I am your host, Lazarus Jackson. Pleased, as always, to be joined by my usual co-host Ben Gulker. What's up, Ben? Hey, Laz, I'm doing well, man. March is here. March Madness is close, and uh, yeah, let's let's dig into some draft prospects as we uh, look toward the NCAA tourney getting a little bit closer. I agree, and to do that, because neither one of us knows what we're talking about, we brought in an expert. <laughs> Uh, from the Locked On NBA Draft podcast, uh, credentialed media member Richard Stamen, aka Mavs Draft. What's up, Rich? Hey, it's good to be here. I've uh, I feel like I found myself a little bit more involved with Pistons Twitter this year, so it's good to be uh, on a Pistons podcast. No, we uh, we appreciate uh, you being here. I don't think this is the first Pistons podcast you've done, but um, I definitely this is definitely the the right time of year to have you on and talk to you and leverage your expertise. So we truly appreciate uh, you uh, coming on. But actually the first thing I want to talk to uh, everyone about was Ben, the Pistons have won five of their last seven games. Uh, Are we worried that they're like not going to finish with one of the three worst records in the league? And thus like, we're going to have to talk to Richard about a lot more names than we uh, previously (laughs) hoped we would. Yeah, man. Got to get out the Rolodex and uh, see who these, what five through 10 are maybe yikes. This is a little scary. I mean, Winning's been fun. Winning is always fun. They're still okay now, but man, five out of seven, that's that's a little bit scary as far as the tank is concerned. I think some of the play is probably a little bit of a hot streak and isn't going to last, but also, I don't know, man, there's some stuff happening with Cade, with um, people talking about a big three in Detroit. Uh-oh. Um, there's some stuff that looks like it might be around for a little while. So uh, Weaver and Casey may be going to get a little creative the way they did a season ago. Yeah, I. it's so funny to me that, like, after the trade deadline, everybody was like, Jeremy Grant, we hate you. Like, why are you still here? And now he's, like, contributing to wins and, like, silence, complete <laughs> silence on that front. Uh, but, like, speaking of Cade, though, Richard, uh, what was your – what do you think of Cade coming out of Oklahoma State as a prospect? And what, if anything, has, like, changed your perception of Cade, like, as we've seen him play over the course of his rookie year? Yeah, I was very high on Cade Cunningham, as as was just about everyone else. But I really did not expect the the thing that surprised me is just his defense. I mean, I thought it was a little bit mediocre in college, and he's actually been, I'd say, good 
in the NBA, really able to hang with most players. So, I mean, the two-way superstar mold is really being built for Cade. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on a Pistons podcast, but I genuinely do believe once the shot-making consistency comes, especially on that three-point shot, you're just going to see an absolute explosion. And he's already putting up a consistent 18-7-5 and any given night. As a rookie who someone, he missed all of training camp, if I'm not mistaken, missed a portion of the year to open the year. He's really kind of playing from a step behind. He's still looking like a rookie of the year candidate or the rookie of the year even. And to me, that's that's a building block. I mean, that's a number one. That's a cornerstone. That is the guy in the franchise. And y'all got him. Like, he is going to be that guy, and he's only going to keep getting better. So what... I guess what is the the next building block that you see as what would be like supremely complimentary to Cade? And is that like at the top of this year's draft? Yeah, I think it it's hard to say there's a self-creator that can do what he needs next to him outside of Jaden Ivy, but I think you want someone ideally for me, just based on how the top of the class is, the top three guys I have are all six ten or taller. So having a big creator who can play defense which all three of the top three can do i think that's a great fit next to Cade cunningham okay uh so earlier this week the staff at trey bad boy so that's like all like i think 10 or 12 of us posted our like collective top 15 big board and at the top of that big board was jabari smith jr out of auburn uh do you agree that jabari is at the top of the class and what makes him special as, as a prospect yeah, I'm usually pretty stubborn about moving my top three in the season just because I feel like it can be very reactionary to recent games. Mm-hmm. But obviously it's a little bit off because I do it with four through however much I have. Jabari has just been, to me, he stands out so much every single night. He's a big Clay Thompson to me. And that kind of player is going to be a number one pick in the draft. And he's going to be the number one player in most drafts, like having that all-star caliber player. And obviously, I want to clarify, he is not the level of a shooter as Clay Thompson is right now. And obviously, I don't think he really will be. But he is arguably the best shooter in the class. While he plays very good defense, he has insanely good hands. He can hit shots off the dribble, just needs to get a little bit better at driving to the rim. And once he evolves in those areas, which I think is very reasonable to expect, he could beat the best player in the draft. Ben, what do you think about a 6'10 Clay Thompson as a, as a dance partner for Cade? <laughs> well, I like Clay Thompson a lot. He's pretty good, right? Like, uh, I like big men who defend. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is certainly tantalizing. It is certainly appealing. I wonder if we have a mathematician in the audience who could tell us what the odds would be of us pulling the old Cleveland Cavaliers, right? And rolling the dice uh, for the number one pick two years in this in this sort of close succession. I mean, that sort of combination. I mean, Cade is such a fantastic passer. This season we've had so few options for him, particularly at the four and five, to create for those big men positions. I mean, the thought of having a big man who can stretch um, – Wow. I mean, yeah, absolutely. The, the stars, if they align in that way, um, wow, we'll, we'll all be yelling and screaming maybe a little bit more than we were even a season ago. No, absolutely. I, uh, I'm i really curious to see the what like the next step of Smith Jr.'s uh, progression looks like. Like you, you mentioned, or Richard mentioned that like he, he doesn't necessarily put the ball on the floor all that much. I do think that 
you will kind of need that in order to be uh, this sort of like creator you normally want from a like a top three pick. But that's that's like literally the only thing he's missing. And so uh, and that, but that's a big piece. And so I'll be really curious to see like how his uh, how his career plays out. But excited, definitely, because uh, at minimum, he offers up uh, the possibility of elite shooting and uh, very solid defense like next to Cade, which are great fits, right? Like, again, we're, we're building this whole thing around Cade and uh, and everything kind of fits around him. So, like, that's great. Um, Richard, the next dude I, I guess I wanted to ask you about was was Chet Holmgren. Um, when when I ask, like, I love Chet. Like, I think Chet, Chet would be one on my board. I think he was one on my board. But when I ask people who aren't sold on Chet why they're not sold on it, sold on him it comes down to two things the body type is like he's you know seven one and under 200 pounds which is real real skinny and the level of competition like nobody trusts um the fact that like gonzaga is playing against a bunch of like future accountants right and so like do you think are you concerned at all about chet being able to hold his own eventually in time uh, in the nba and like, are you worried about does have Gonzaga prospects in the past, like giving you trouble because like the level of competition they've gone up against? So I'll start with the competition. I don't think that's actually a valid issue anymore, especially one just because the nature of the game has evolved so much. Even 10 years ago, the level of players, I mean, almost every collegiate team has a future pro somewhere. And the West Coast Conference is actually pretty good this year. San Francisco was one of the last undefeated teams in the entire country. Uh, BYU is good. St. Mary's is top 25. Pepperdine, they're the worst team in the conference, but they actually have a couple guys who have been eyed by future or by NBA teams in future drafts. Santa Clara has an NBA prospect and they're not bad. I think it's actually a pretty good conference. And it's really like you look at some of the bad Power Five conferences this year, the drop off isn't that much. And on top of that, Gonzaga played a pretty decent out-of-conference schedule. They played the number one defense in Texas Tech. They played Duke. They played Alabama. They played UCLA. They played Texas. Obviously, like, you know, you have some sprinkled in cupcakes. They opened the year against Dixie State, Merrimack, Tarleton State. But, like, overall, he's playing good teams. And on top of that, in-conference play from January 8th uh, to actually every game except the last one against St. Mary's, he had a double-digit scoring streak. Um and I left this out kind of biased, but just to emphasize how good his best peak was, it was a 13 game stretch. He averaged 16 points a game, 11 rebounds, one and a half assists, one steal, three and a half blocks on 63% shooting. And on four threes a game, he shot 51% while shooting 81% from the free throw line. So that is unbelievably dominant what he did. And on top of that, what you said with the, you know, can his body hold up the people I've talked to within NBA circles, don't think so. I agree with them. Uh, we, I mean, I'm, I'm also a Mavs fan. I just saw Kristaps Porzingis for the last three years. Get, <laughs> uh, so I'm a little bit, you know, sour towards that kind of body. But the difference with him and Chet is Chet is such a better ball handler. And on top of that, Chet has probably the best shot blocking instincts I feel like I've ever seen. And I don't mean to keep sounding dramatic. I just compared a guy to Clay Thompson that I just said best shot blocking instinct ever. Um, but I really do feel strongly about Chet's talent. I think he's one of the more talented players we've ever seen coming through. Uh, just with that body type, it's so rare. Will he pan out? That's where the question comes comes into play. Because just because you're the most talented does not mean you're going to be the best player. No, that's that's absolutely fair. So I guess if if Chet 
doesn't develop as uh as as we'd like and he ends up being you know more of a wing player than a center uh you know what do you think of like a chet isaiah stewart pairing would that some be something that you think would be effective i think they could play off each other very well isaiah stewart's defense is you know it's less than ideal but his foot speed for example isn't bad he's kept up with guys on the drive we've seen that and i think that could kind of help chet play his best role as a shot blocker and then offensively, you know, if Stewart isn't going to space the floor, Chet can. And mm-hmm. I think they kind of just play off each other in that way. I think it'd be a good fit. Yeah, Ben, we, we've seen, Ben, we've seen a lot of switching out of uh, out of Isaiah Stewart this season. Uh, they've been they've been asking him to do that a lot defensively. And we talked last week, right, about how uh, the Bagley-Stewart lineups kind of worked defensively because uh, Bagley's, like, rebounding ability, um, you know, behind those Isaiah Stewart switches. Uh, and, you know, their ability to crash the offensive glass, gaining them extra possessions. Um, what do you think about having a a secondary rim protector of sorts behind Isaiah Stewart switching in a guy like Chet Holmgren? Yeah, so I, I'm really interested to hear, you know, the comment that he's got one of the best shot blocking instincts that you've seen, Richard. That's fascinating to me. Um you know, most of the highlights we see, I think, from Chet have to do with his offense. Mm-hmm. I haven't paid as much attention to his defense for that reason, I think. Um, certainly the Pistons have lacked um, rim protection for, I mean, a long time. Andre Drummond was probably the best in recent memory, and that was not necessarily something. I mean, he he, he did average his blocks and steals, but I don't think he necessarily comes to mind as one of the best rim protectors in the league or anything. Mm-hmm. So it's a dimension the Pistons haven't had for a very long time. I think the thing I worry about is the extent to which that translates because I, you know, my concern about Chet is he just going to get bullied out of the paint offensively and defensively. Right. So, you know, you can have fantastic shot blocking instincts, but if, if you can just get bullied and screened away from, from all of the action that's happening in the interior, then those instincts get, you know, literally pushed out of play. So I think that would be my concern. Um, you know, but theoretically, if the body holds up, if he can gain weight, he could stay healthy. He puts all of us to shame for questioning any of that. Then I think on paper, it absolutely um, makes some amount of sense because I think Stewart has been improving some of that lateral foot speed, um, at least sufficiently enough if you've got a big, you know, a big giant like Chet behind him to, to make up for any of those deficiencies it might have. Yeah, I'd be I'd be really curious to see if the initial like before he proves he can uh, hold his own against NBA defenders, if like the initial desire to you know, go at Chet kind of in the post to kind of muscle him out of plays or to attack him in that way defensively might actually be a good thing for like the other four dudes on the court, just because like Chet is excellent in in recovery as well. And so as if you can buy you know those precious half seconds on like hedges or stunts or something like that. Like you can give him enough time to recover and unleash some of those shot blocking instincts. Um, I'd be, I'd be really curious to see how that would play out. I, I like Chet uh, a whole, whole bunch. Um, but the next guy, Richard, I want to ask you about, of course, is the third guy above six ten, um, Paulo Benchero. Now Paulo went from like, I don't want to say it was like stone cold lock preseason at number one, but it felt like his name was the name we heard the most um, going into this season. And now his star is a dimmed a little bit. Like, obviously, he's third, and we're talking about him third. So it's not like he's, you know, gone down that far. But I've heard some people, like, place, you know, for example, Jaden Ivey ahead of him, which is, like, not something I would have seen coming into the season. While, you know, 
what happened to to Paulo this season? He's been productive, and Duke is, you know, before their super embarrassing loss yesterday, which was hilarious, has been like a very a very good team. So like, why? I guess why is uh why is Paulo kind of fallen in the eyes of uh, a lot of people? Yeah, he started the season pretty hot. Uh, was definitely my number one. I thought a six nine, six ten, potentially even six eleven. How tall he is? A uh, scorer that can score from anywhere on the floor, can pass, uh, defend at a at least average level. I thought that was a clear cut number one player. But then you look at his numbers from February to last night against Duke. It was actually an even one month period, February fifth to March fifth. It was ten games. And what I'm about to read just does not sound like a number one pick, especially when he can factor in he's six ten. So he averaged fifteen and a half points per game. 6.6 rebounds, four assists, which is pretty good. Uh, less than a steal and block per game, two and a half turnovers. But on 39.6% shooting and 33% from three with 75% from the line, which the 75% is what he has for the year, his numbers just really dipped. And I think teams kind of figured him out, and that really hurts. I think another thing, and this is a super nitpicky thing, but the passing has to improve the fundamentals because almost – I would say probably almost half of his turnovers come from not knowing how to make a post-entry pass to Mark Williams. If you watch his out-of-conference games, that's almost every single turnover. So those two things are really going to be difference makers for Paolo. How often is he going to be asked to make post-entry passes in the NBA, though? Yeah, and and that's a good point. Uh, I do think, depending on how much he plays on the perimeter, he might need to if he you know identifies a mismatch. It's just the accuracy is so bad, and I'm wondering... I'm probably reading into it too much, but I'm wondering what his pass accuracy actually is because sometimes, you know, his, uh, his, you know, he gets the assist, but can he make the right reads at a high level and accurately? That's where I kind of throw in the pass accuracy to refer to. No, that's totally fair. Um, Paula's the, what, what kind of, what kind of NBA comparison would you use for actually, do you like NBA comparisons? I know some draft guys like don't like using comps. Like how do you, how do you feel about comps? I do when I have, when I feel like I I like the comparisons when I feel like I have the right comparison ready. Unfortunately for so many guys, I feel like I just don't. So, so I like them when I have them available. It's just really hard for me to come up with them a lot of times. That's fair. Do do you have one for Paulo? Does, because I feel like, his game is going to be very different once he gets to the NBA. And so like having an example of uh, somebody's game uh, whose, whose game is kind of reminiscent of his is, is helpful for envisioning his, uh, his future. Yeah, I, I really don't have one. I've been trying to think of somebody that resembles him. I'm just having a hard time. Maybe I'm just overthinking things and just looking past some obvious players, but uh, for me, it's just hard with his size and skill set. I think he's a 6'10", three-level scorer, which that's a really rare thing. So it's hard to actually draw an accurate mm-hmm. comparison. The best I can do is probably like bigger versions of some players. But even then, I just feel like that's kind of inaccurate. So I've had a hard time with that. No, that's fair. Ben, you know, even for a guy whose production has you know, waxed and waned, as Richard kind of just explained, uh, the Pistons do kind of need more scoring, and so the uh, the six ten three level score sounds intriguing. Where where have you been on on Paolo? So I've seen we're talking about NBA comps, right? The the name that I've seen floated that is interesting to me a little bit is Julius Randle. Um, you know, Randle's NBA career has been uh, interesting, I guess we could say. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sure that physically, you know, physically, I feel like 
Randall's much more of a bruiser at times, but um, you know, that comp is interesting. Those types of skills I think are, are super interesting in today's NBA. Um, I'm curious about the, the NBA shooting though. Um, you know, Richard mentioned the dip in shooting that's been happening over the course of the season. Gives me a little bit of pause because <sighs> making the leap, as we've seen with, you know, Cade Cunningham, making the leap to three point NBA shooting is not easy. Not everyone does it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that, might be the thing that gives me a little bit of pause. Um, but our, maybe I'm just splitting hairs. I mean, he's obviously a very talented player. I think if he's BPA when the Pistons are picking at five or six, which God feels like inevitable at this point, <laughs> like if somehow he slides that far, I think you'd be pretty crazy not to take a chance on all of those skills and all of that talent that's there. You know, I, I, I definitely agree with that, Ben, right? Like, it's much easier to talk yourself into Paolo at like five or four than it is at like two, right? Uh, you, f- you feel like you're missing out on uh, a lot. You feel like you're missing out on a different caliber or prospect, um, you know, even if you, you know, drop down from two to four, uh, which we hope the Pistons don't do, but I still got to ask about it. Uh, Richard, next guy I want to bring up is Jaden Ivey. And actually the... We got some Twitter questions. We got some DBB questions. This is uh, a question from one of our other writers at Detroit Bad Boys. It's with uh, with Jaden with Jaden why are people not more frightened of his lack of a mid range game and regressing shooting numbers? Yeah, it's a good question, and that's something that's been holding me back on Jaden Ivy. But I think it really just stems to the fact that one, I mean, he plays defense, which is uh, and I'll start with that. I, I'm going a little bit backwards, but he plays defense. And when you have that combo of someone who gets to the rim at such a high level and has such unbelievable burst in getting to the rim, I mean, you look at John Morant right now, right? Like the way he gets to the rim is unguardable. It, he has a very similar game to John Morant. Uh, I think especially statistically, you'll see it a little bit more than actual play style. But if you have that with a little bit better defense and a drop-off in the mid-range and almost that in-between that's not mid-range but like kind of floater range, you know, you don't see it as much there. And that is a worry for me is why isn't that there with the combo of his jump shot isn't lethal by any means. He, he can shoot from far, but is it actually a, a weapon right now? And like you said, I mean, the NBA 3 does take time to adjust to. What's he going to have when he can't? go you know when teams are going to back in on him and make him go you know and they can plan for him to go into the paint and they're going to make him shoot whether it's a mid-range or three what are they going to do for him and how does he overcome it so that's my question that's why i haven't risen him as much so i'm kind of agreeing with that is you know how much can it hold him back how much does can he overcome it yeah i'm the the dynamism is really intriguing the the relentlessness that jade nabi plays with is really intriguing but uh the I I have real questions about his ability to play, like to play with his speed, right? I feel like that's something he doesn't, we don't see from, from him as much. Part of that is just like Purdue plays weird and not weird, but they play very collegey, right? Like two bigs on the floor at all time. Paint's always packed. It's, it's easy to see why he doesn't, he feels like he needs to shoot through every single gap because there aren't that many gaps available. But uh, at the same time, like you, like you just see him mashing the turbo button for 40 minutes. And it's like, I don't, I don't know if that's, um, I don't know if that's like how you're not going to be able to solve NBA defenses by doing that. Right. You're that's not, we've seen like, 
even like guys with that like elite level athleticism and speed like like deer and fox and like john morant like it a takes them time to figure things out and be like they learn how to play at different speeds um and that is what like in uh that's what brings a lot of their success forward and so i'll be i need to see Jaden ivy do that a little bit more before i get sold on him uh ben where are you at with uh with Jaden ivy i know the highlights have been uh ridiculous though and we there is a need for more athleticism in the backcourt next to Kate Cunningham. So where where are you at with Jaden? Yeah, it comes down a lot to where we pick. I think, um, you know, thinking about back turn backcourt pairings with Cade Cunningham, which we've discussed on the pod last, um, his tenaciousness and his his quality defense leap out to me. Um, we don't want to have Cade doing full time run the show offense and somehow try to make him full time shut down the best backcourt player of the opposition, right? Um, that's something if you look at the Warriors with Steph and Clay, right? The way they they trade off makes a lot of sense. So that sort of that part of his game is super appealing to me. Um, I will say the shooting numbers though give me a whole heck of a lot of pause. Um, this is not fair to either player, but like it, it's made me think of what's happening with Russell Westbrook in the late stages of his career, right? Like he's a guy who just never learned to shoot. That part of his mm-hmm. game just never developed. And, you know, obviously he had some brilliant seasons and did some incredible things on the basketball court. But you look at the way the game is trending now and, um, you know, I, I don't know. I just don't know if there's a whole lot of room for super athletic shooting guards who shoot sub 30% from three and, you know, don't have much in the mid range either. So those would be the concerns. And obviously to write him off um, because Russell Westbrook's not playing well right now is not fair. That's obviously not fair at all. But I think yeah. that's the thing that gives you pause. If that shooting doesn't develop, it's it's just really hard to envision, um, you know, how's he a starter in the NBA, right? Like, or is he just some guy coming off the bench to give you energy and defense later, you know, in your rotation? Yeah. And, and the interesting thing to me is, like, Troy Weaver, like, made his name off of Russell Westbrook, right? And so yeah. I do kind of wonder if uh, that is uh, – that is an archetype that he is more interested in than other uh, general managers might be. Um, but like you said, Ben, it, it really comes down to selection. Like I, I think he's a, he's definitely a totally worthy selection, like in the top four or five. Um, it just, you know, comes down to where the Pistons end up picking. But, uh, but Richard, like though, like those are the big four. I think at this point, I think Jaden Ivey has like put his name kind of like into the same arena with those other guys. Um, and this this is a question we got on Twitter, and I'm just, I forget the exact username, but I want I want to ask it. It's like, so we have these top four guys. At what at what point are the Pistons or any other team, you know, selecting in the lottery, out of the running for like a true top end elite talent? Right? Is it is it are there only like are there only these four guys we've already talked about? Is it only like two guys? Is it there's really only one guy who's like a franchise altering talent? Like what where? where do the tiers like really start in your mind when it comes down to this draft? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the literal approach. And I do think uh, that, and I'll, I'll answer both sides, but with the literal approaches, you know, in a draft like this, where the top is, you know, there's three really good guys, but are any of them franchise changers? They ultimately unlikely, um, but they could be really good players for a franchise that elevate them. Uh, just not being the cornerstone. Like Cade Cunningham's a franchise changer. There's no Cade Cunningham in this class. Uh, there's no Evan Mobley. There's really no one from the top five or six in this class. Um, however, I think you could expand 
while yes, like those four are a tier, that's a tier pretty much. Um, I would add maybe one more in there, and it's someone who I actually have higher than Jaden Ivey, and that's AJ Griffin. I think if you made him healthy heading into the season in, in high school, I think he had a knee issue is what it was. If you took that out, AJ Griffin would be in the running for number one. I mean, he's an incredible shooter despite a really, really wide base, which has always been a weird thing to me. Uh, but very good athlete. I think he'll be good on defense, has a lot of tendencies similar to the great defenders throughout the league. And ultimately, I mean, someone like him, I think he's going to be a very good slasher. He's just got a great feel for the game. I would add him as a one of those guys in the four or five. So if you slip to five, if, say, Detroit does end up with a worse record, they can't get worse than five, if I'm not mistaken, maybe four, actually. Um, but I do think that, you know, AJ Griffin could be that worst case scenario, and it's a damn good worst case scenario to have. Why? Why do you think AJ Griffin is it? Is it just the injuries that are keeping him kind of out of that that same realm uh, for others? Is it uh, the the fear of the unsustainable shooting? He's not going to shoot like fifty percent or forty nine percent from three for uh, uh, for like his NBA team because guys don't shoot. 50% from three on big samples, uh, just in general. Like what, what do you think is keeping AJ Griffin out of that tier? Yeah, I think first of all, yes, he will regress and what he's doing right now, granted it has been 30, 31 games. It's remarkable. Um, I think a big thing of it is volume. He didn't, he took one game in the first, uh, two months actually with 10 shots or more only one time. And then for the rest of the season, he averaged nine points, uh, or excuse me, nine field goal attempts per game. And he still shot 50% from three. I mean, the volume's there. Um, I think it's really just the volume being consistently there throughout the year. I think that's the biggest thing for him. And then also, I mean, yeah, I do think the injury is it. But it's hard to diagnose someone in the middle of a five-man lineup that is all first-round talent. So I think it's a little bit of difficulty evaluating. And then the injury definitely plays a role, but... Like you said, the shooting is very nice. It's great to see this incredible success, but maybe teams have learned from the Aaron Neesmith route where, hey, maybe, <laughs> oh, no. you know, you know he, he had a 13-game or 12-game hot streak is what he had. He went lottery for it ahead of Desmond Bain and Sadiq Bey, and it was a mistake. And maybe teams are going, hey, let's, like, calm down on numbers, even though the free throw percentage is there to support it. 48% throughout the regular season is not a sustainable number. So... I would say those are the factors that go into it. And then, you know, can he be the lead dog? Cause he, he hasn't been very much at Duke. That that was going to be my next question actually about AJ Griffin. Like, where do you think he is as a ball handler, uh, as a, as a creator? Like I don't, the Pistons don't need him to be a primary creator, like obviously because they have Cade, but can he be a, a secondary guy like in the backcourt? Or do you think he's more kind of relegated on the wing uh, type situation? Yeah, I think he's relegated more on the wing. I do mm-hmm. think what helps him a lot is that he has such a fir- quick first step, excuse me, that he'll be able to get to the rim pretty well, and he has good vision. He keeps his head up. He'll be able to see the floor while he's driving, and that'll open up a lot of opportunities for other teammates. And and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, on Detroit, the driving kick is a weakness right now, so that would help a lot too. The the drive and both elements of that are weaknesses in Detroit <laughs> right now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Also the shooting. <laughs> so all three parts. Yeah, it solves all three, three levels. <laughs> uh, it's, it's almost like they're one of the worst teams in the NBA. Uh, ben, where where are you at with AJ Griffin? I know that uh, he, like, he's been playing as kind of the like, 
weirdly like the third option on a Duke team. But like Richard said, they have, uh, you know, five first round picks on, on the team. It seems like, um, and the, the shooting is nice, but like we talked about the, we don't expect the shooting to progress. So if we have a, a high level three and D wing next to Cade with, uh, some like ball handling equity, it's like, I feel like we kind of already have that in Sadiq. It's like, would it be nice to put more Sadiq's next to Cade? <laughs> so that was my exact, that was going to be my exact comment. Um, you, you have that role, I think pretty well filled. Um, I, I'm very much a believer in a team for a team in Detroit scenario to pick best player available. But I like, unless somehow they drop like way down, like, I, I don't know. I struggle with even thinking too much about him for the Pistons. I don't, I don't mean to disagree with Richard's draft board at all. That's not my intent, but I feel like the Pistons have that role in Sadiq pretty well locked up. And I'd really like to see some other sort of skill set. You know, if it's going to be a two, three combo kind of guy, I, I really don't want to have the redundancy of a, a three and D sort of guy um, paired with Sadiq and Kate to me that just doesn't seem to fit very well. Yeah. We, we, we joked about the driving kick, right. But the like, and Sadiq has made real strides as a rim pressure, as a guy who pressures the rim, as a guy who is able to attack off the dribble and like in isolation off of jab steps and stuff. But um, it doesn't really, it like, that will that will remain kind of like his changeup when and the shooting will still be the thing that I think concerns uh, NBA defenses at, at the top level. And so to have like two of those guys, uh, yeah, I I wonder about that too. But I, I like every I like everything I've seen from AJ Griffin when I watch him play. But I I agree that he's uh, like on the Pistons. I don't know if he's the best like fit per se. All right, Richard, the next guy I wanted to ask you about was Johnny Davis. Johnny Davis is not – I've seen a lot of comments that are basically like, oh, we would love to draft Johnny Davis at 12, but in this draft he's not going to go 12. So I guess if we want him, we're going to have to take him like 7 or 8. It's like, is, th- is that like a good line of thinking? Like I, I don't – uh, where, where are you at with Johnny Davis? Yeah, so yeah. I'll give you the – the warning. I, I am actually much lower on Johnny Davis than most. He obviously had a ridiculous hot streak, scoring double digits points in all of his first 19 games. And he had a really good out of conference schedule. They played some really good defensive teams like Houston. Um, so he definitely has faced the, uh, the gauntlet in the Big Ten also. However, I would say in the final month of the season, we've seen some slowdown, kind of in the way we saw Powell. The teams kind of figured him out. And my worry for him is, can he consistently get a shot off as a primary on-ball player against NBA defenders? Because the Penn State game a month ago was pretty rough. He couldn't. He was getting blocked left and right. Even when he had a step on a defender, he couldn't get the shot off quick enough. Um, there was a game, I want to say it was against, uh, I think it was Rutgers. He was getting shut down against like decent defenders, borderline all Big Ten defenders. And to me, it's just can he be that primary option or is he someone who is best as an off ball player who, you know, he gets the spot up opportunity, does a few dribbles, goes to work and does his damage. And the outcome for whichever one he goes for is an on ball creator, off ball creator, pretty wide gaps for me. So I, I go back and forth. I think regardless, he has a spot in the league, but is he going to be a top 10 pick? I, I don't know if I'd take him top 10, especially, I mean, you said seven or eight. That's a little bit worrisome for me. There's other guys I would take ahead of him. But with Johnny Davis, I mean, he's going to score. It just depends on how much and what volume and how. 
So it really depends on what you're trying to do with him. No, that's that's fair. What who are some of those guys that you have above Davis then? Uh, and we like we talked about Griffin. We talked about the top four guys. Like who are who are I guess are the guys like in the six, seven, eight range for you, Richard? Yeah. So one of them's kind of a cheat answer because we don't actually know what he's going to do. That's Shade oh, and Sharp. Sharp. Yeah, yeah. Sharp, Shade and Sharp out of Kentucky. I would, or yeah, I wasn't even going to ask about him because it. It's I, hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard because we don't have real tape. Um, but the intrigue with him, I mean, Jay Billis has been one of those guys who said, you know, he's one of the most dominant high school players we've seen, and the frame and scoring ability and tool set is absolutely unique as a six-five long three-level score. Uh, that's that's not something that comes around very often, and then. Um, the other guys, Ty Ty Washington, I think he's really fallen because he tried to play through his ankle injury and his stats have really suffered. But before then, I mean, he's the best pick and roll guard in the draft, which is an automatic translating skill. Keegan Murray out of Iowa. I am ridiculously high on, I mean, his scoring ability is elite for a college player. I don't know if it will be in the NBA, but he also is a strong defender. So that player is the top 10 player. And then I've also got Nikola Jovic and Benedict Matherin. Uh, over him and a couple other guys have actually got Davis at 13. So I'm, I'm really low on him. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that is pretty low, but I, I don't hate it. Like personally, um, Keegan Murray is one of the guys that I wanted to ask you about. Um, you know, he, he isn't, he's been insanely productive, but he's also like, I wonder if he has Obi Toppin syndrome where like he's, he's 21 and like really skilled. And so like, of course he's going to be productive in college, but we, like the questions about how, that production translates to the NBA are like a, a little bit furrier or fuzzier furrier. That's weird. Uh, and I know Keegan is a much better shooter. I think, I think Keegan is much better shooter than Toppin was. And so that helps him on that front. But do you think like, should we be grading Keegan's productivity like on a curve because of his age? Absolutely. That should factor into it. But even if you lower it by, I don't know if you made it like, 75% of what it is. He's still over 15 points per game. He's shooting 57% from the field and he's scoring at all three levels. 38, 38.5% from three. Uh, decent free throw percentage could be better, 72. But, uh, and again, he's playing really lights out defense. Yeah, he turns 22 before the season would even start. However, I think there's a lot of differences between him and the players who came before him, which is, I mean, yeah, he's a sophomore. So the experience level is different. And also, you know, like, and I know you weren't trying to compare Obi one to one, but like, while Keegan Murray does have a system built around him, Obi also did. But Obi's was being an off-ball player and running him exclusively through post-ups, pick and rolls, and spot-up threes. Whereas Keegan Murray is just kind of doing everything for that team, and he can pass, he can spot-up shoot, he does need to get better like movement threes, but he really can do just about everything you would want a combo three four to be able to do right off the bat he's going to be a high floor player and i think his ceiling is actually pretty high for someone his age just because he has all the defensive instincts his feel for the game is really strong he can run in quick offense all of it i i really do think he translates well yeah it, the, the only problem with keegan is again like the thing we were talking about with aj griffin where it's like if you have this skill set kind of already on the roster with sadiq bay it's like i it's like i i think uh like the the diversity of offense that you like see out of Keegan is like really interesting, but it's just like in in the NBA like he's not going to get like these post duck ins right. He's maybe not going to get out in transition as much. Like Ben knows, Lord knows, I've been trying to get the Pistons <laughs> to run more for years now. Uh, 
but like and who knows if like a, another wing player who runs will, will help in that regard but yeah it's just like ben do we need another three four combo guy who uh we don't trust to have the ball in their hands <laughs> well you got to trade jeremy grant first i think oh yeah um, definitely yeah uh my question would be to what extent can he live as a full-time power forward right because Again, right? You're you're right to point out there's some overlap in the skill set with Sadiq Bay if he's well, I, combo. I three think four. I think when Jeremy was out though, we've seen Sadiq can play full time power forward. I think he can in a lot of matchups. I think he can in a lot of matchups. I think that's especially defensively. I think that's fair. And I think if he is playing power forward and uh, that's a full time slot, he creates a lot of advantageous mismatches. I think right because he's not the the quickest of foot guy at the three. Right. So I think that could create some advantages. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, he's not a guy that I had been thinking about for the mm-hmm. Pistons all that much. Um, Richard's comment made me maybe want to reevaluate a little bit. Um, I had also been thinking, Les, like you, about the Big Ten and grading on a curve. So he's not a guy I had been eyeing all that all that much for all those reasons. No, that's a that's a great point, Ben. Um, Richard, there's one last dude I want to ask you about, and it's not going to be because the like i think he'll be drafted by the pistons but just because his his path like is fascinating me at this point and that's jaden hardy like jaden hardy of course was considered uh like maybe like a top five prospect coming into this year obviously uh like the g league ignite is a huge showcase for guys to come in and like prove what they have to nba teams um he has struggled with the ignite but i think teams still have like a first round grade on him but uh you know what? What kind of uh, what kind of range do you think we'll see for Jaden Hardy on draft night? Yeah, I think he's got one of the widest ranges. You could see him being the Josh Primo of this draft of a whoa, didn't expect him to go lottery, or you could see him being a Cam Thomas and going, dang, he fell a lot further than we thought. And the from one person I've talked to in the NBA about Jaden Hardy. They've said it, it comes down to Cam Thomas. You watch what he's doing right now, how he is translated in like, you know, the ultimate, it, it gets overthought. Scoring really gets overthought. Sure, he's not going to do a ton of playmaking for others, but the end goal is to put the ball in the basket. If you can do that at a decent level and Harden needs to, or excuse me, Hardy needs to uh, improve his efficiencies at 35% and 27% from three. If he can do that, you know, he's got a spot. And I think a big difference between him and Cam Thomas, because I do think he actually is a better prospect than Cam Thomas is, is really just the fact that he can play make for others. He averages three assists a game in the G League. Cam Thomas averaged barely one at LSU, but his ability to drive and kick is really impressive. He can be an off-ball threat, crazy range, just really needs to be more consistent at making his shots, which sounds a lot easier than it actually is. But again, to reference what you said at the beginning, I mean, Cade, for example, going up to the three-point level shooting in the NBA is not exactly easy. So that's going to be a big difference maker for him. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, um, Ben, you're not getting out of this. What is your one positive things for this? This should be easy this week, though, yeah, because they, yeah, they, they've they've won a bunch of games. So, like, what, what's your one positive thing this week? This? Well, I'll tell you what, man. It certainly it is the winning three wins in a week. Um, wow, when is the last time we've been able to say that, Les? I'm I'm honestly not sure. It's been a long time. I didn't check the schedule, but it feels like it's been years. So that's what I'm going to go with. Um, look, I I think the the subplot of the winning is Sadiq, Jeremy, and Cade figuring some things out i think three of the four games this week they all were extremely productive uh sharing the floor together 
Um, you know, I'm curious, did, did the all-star break have anything to do with that? Right. I, I had been skeptical that Jeremy Grant would defer very much over the course of a season. It looked to me like maybe that would need to be an off season sort of adjustment or conversation that needed to happen. I'm super curious if those guys got together, if the coaching staff got together and they sort of hashed some things out because, um, yeah, it's looked a lot better than a lot of people, myself included expected. I, I certainly thought those three guys could figure it out, but again, I thought it might take them a a summer and a full off season to get there, given that Cade missed so much of, uh, you know, his first preseason and all that stuff. So yeah, the winning's been a blast and it's been fun to see those three, you know, top offensive guys really blossom and bloom together all at the same time. That's, it's just been a lot of fun to watch. No, definitely. Them, the when all three guys play well the pistons like actually have a chance to win games and like we we've seen that over the course of these last couple of weeks right the their ability to coexist is something that definitely warrants watching the rest of the season it's been really interesting to me because like as you mentioned ben like you like we've seen jeremy take not necessarily a backseat in terms of like field goal attempts or like you know crunch time offense or anything like that but uh it it's he's having the ball in his hands less but they're drawing up like more uh like when he does have the ball it feels more intentional right we're seeing more like pin downs for jeremy grant to come off and attack the basket we're seeing more uh you know setups for jeremy grant to uh, end up with like corner threes and things like that we're, we're seeing out of the out of the aforementioned like driving kick game um we're seeing him we're seeing less of what i thought might end up happening in that situation where is that like you you play him with the bench lineups and just like here like you can play these five minutes next to next to Killian and take all the shots you want because Killian won't shoot anyway um and so it's like I, but we haven't seen that as much right because they've been experimenting with Bagley and, and doing all those things and so I've i like I'm and you know obviously there were the concerns uh, leading up to the draft or leading up to the trade deadline excuse me uh about like you know whether or not Jeremy Grant wanted to be quote unquote, like the guy for uh, any NBA team, he, he wanted to be traded. He was going to be traded too. And I think his willingness to take like a half step back in the offense to help elevates Cade, Cade role in the offense and uh, to not cannibalize a lot of what Sadiq has been able to do is a, like a, should be a big sign to the other 29 NBA teams. Like Jeremy Grant is willing to do what it takes to, to to win basketball games you know even for a bad basketball team i think that's a that's a really great sign uh last thing is the schedule ben they've won five of seven but the schedule's looking kind of tough this week they play atlanta on monday they play chicago on wednesday they play in boston on friday boston is just like a buzzsaw right now despite the fact that they've already beaten them uh, one time during the stretch and then they play the clippers on sunday in the in a matinee game uh, those, that looks like four losses to me, Ben. I'm glad we banked these wins. <laughs> Schedule always looks rough when you're at the bottom looking up, right? I mean, it's always bad, but yeah, the, the next four, particularly tough, I think. And it, it, look, after five, winning five out of seven, I think people would be okay with losing four in a row and giving us a little breathing room <laughs> against the other bottom. <laughs> in the standings, yeah. right. I buy that. Yeah. Let's, uh, we all, uh, as we all sit in, uh, in a circle with our hands uh, holding, holding hands, you know, watching the Indiana Orlando game, just praying for both teams to somehow win. Uh, that would be great. 
Richard, thank you so much for your draft expertise on this podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, we'll probably have to have you on a little bit closer to the draft when some of this stuff gets shaken out a little bit. Maybe, you know, we get some trades, we get some some movement. Uh, but in the meantime, let the people know where they can find you and where they can find uh, what you've been working on leading up to this draft season. Yeah, it's uh, dude, it was a blast to have uh, being here. And thank you guys for having me. Uh, I pretty much everything will go through at Mavs Draft on Twitter. Uh, anything I post to MavsDraft.com and then uh, my show on Tuesdays for Locked On NBA Draft will all be posted on my Twitter. So that's the best space to it's kind of the centralized hub for me. Yeah, and uh, the other thing I will say is that Richard also hosts some uh, the occasional like Twitter space, and like those are a really fun. Listen, if you've got uh, some time, or you know, you're just like at your computer, or whatever, put that on in the background, just listening to to the to the the people, the masses, kind of uh, opine has been really entertaining for me personally, and so I would uh, I would highly encourage people to check those out as well uh, if they have the time. Ben. Where the people, where can the people find you, and uh, where you want to talk about the Pistons? Well, uh, first of all, Richard, again, yeah, thanks for coming on. Echo at last said you gave me some cool stuff to think about, some other prospects to look at, which, which I really appreciate. I'm not the biggest draft buff in the world, and I always love talking to people who are. I feel like we learned a lot, and I really appreciate it. Uh, at br golker on Twitter, of course, DetroitBadBoys.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Give us your feedback. We appreciate it. And always, you can follow me on Twitter at Laz Chance. That's at L-A-Z-C-H-A-N-C-E. And uh, I realized I forgot to ask about Benedict Matherin. So now we'll definitely have to have you on again, Richard, for sure. Uh, this has been the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. Thank you for listening. And we will talk to you all next week. See you.